0: Hi everyone, Dan here. And before we start the show, I'd like to take a moment to talk about the WMQ&A Patreon and what it can do for you. For example, did you know we have a monthly bonus podcast called Our Son Pete, in which a guest joins me to talk about a comic starring British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom? It's true. This month, Austin Gorton and I covered Excalibur number 99, and it was a blast. We talked about onslaught, why smoking is bad, but how smoking in comics can be used to do cool things proper posture for reading about Spanish torture in bed, and more. We also have Pete Wisdom stickers designed by Kevin Newburn that say hot claws on them and look great. But maybe that's not what you're looking for. Maybe you're an up-and-coming creator trying to get the word out about your Kickstarter, Zoop, webcomic, or independent book. We can only do so many hour-long interviews in a month. But for $25, we'll dedicate a 60-second spot to shouting out your project, guaranteeing you a few hundred extra earballs. Or maybe you want to advertise your mattress in a box or online therapy program or your pubic hair trimmer. For $50 a month, you can sponsor the show. Who wouldn't want to hear me read ad copy about custom fit underpants or whatever? These are all options available to you, but only if you back us at patreon.com slash Comics. What are we going to do? Say no to your money? Actually, we will if you're a Nazi. But you're probably not. Right? WMQ. Hello and welcome to wmq and the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote.
1: And I'm Matt Lasowitz. And this week's guest is a journalist and the writer of Boom Studios' Maw and the upcoming The Neighbors, Jude Ellison S. Doyle. How are you, Jude?
2: I am doing so well. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So we'll start with the uh, official first-time guest question. What are, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading?
2: I um, went through a phase in like a very dorky phase in middle school where I decided that I was going to understand comics. And I remember that I read a lot of Catwoman because Batman Returns was sort of recently out and I loved Catwoman. Mm -hmm. I didn't like that run that much. It took them a while to sort of get a handle on her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried reading X-Men, but it was too complex for me because like they had all been, you know, X-Men forever and I couldn't keep track of any of the plots. But I became like, this is not, I think I'm the only person who will ever say this on your podcast. I became like hardcore obsessed with Generation X, like the 90s teen X-Men. yeah. (laughs) That was, that was my, my first gateway where like I was there every time a new issue dropped and I collected them and I reread them and they just came out and like, the Bacallo run is out in like a collected edition now. And I, you know, it's still a good run. I still feel like it's, you know, it's not <laughs> Hamlet, but it's something.
0: <laughs> it, it, it is a gorgeous run with that uh, 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 Chris Bacallo art. You know, uh, I had, I'd I seen that you had written very eloquently a few months ago about Generation X and, and what it meant to you in terms of, you know, it's it's diversity in terms of the various emotional armors the kids take up and its its flaws and the kinks. And the things it was able to accomplish in spite of them and, uh, uh, of course, all the, how all of it relates to, to who Teenage you uh, was. It's a very good piece, uh, folks. Y'all should go find it. And uh, I, I appreciated it because I feel like that generation uh, of mutants doesn't get written about like that. You know, you can find reams of, of prose about the new mutants and Excalibur and the Outback era and all of this. But but when it comes to the 90s, the oxygen tends to go to writing about, you know, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and how much X-Men number one sold and all that, you know, that very brief period at the very beginning of the decade. And and they they were good kids that just for the longest time after the series, you know, weren't written well to the point where some of them were just killed off.
2: (laughs) yeah poor skin he was like he was a he was a lead character next time anybody saw him he got crucified on a lawn you know they just and they I think they really just sort of got rid of most of them like and or they had like horrible embarrassing plot lines I think husk lost her mind like a couple of times you know like it was just I think that there's there's been a weird nostalgia recurrence for them though like they resurrected skin. He's in like that saber-tooth arc that Victor yep. Laval wrote. Mm-hmm. And you know, they Sink is apparently back. And you know, I don't I'm not that saber-tooth arc is maybe the only time I've actually gotten deep into the current like Krakoa everlasting eternal mutants sure. paradise issue <laughs> you know and it, it once again it felt like being 12 it felt like okay I'm walking into a room and all these people know each other and I'm just going to try to keep track of the conversation and see what I can pick up <laughs> but um you know but yeah I think that there's it it was a really weird Moment in pop culture where like X Men, it was not yet 2000. Hugh Jackman was on nobody's mind. It was not yet ubiquitous, but it was also really big. So mm-hmm. something could sort of like exist in the realm of like 27 different X books that was like their young, fun Buffy equivalent. And it wouldn't ultimately make that big of a dent on the culture. You know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it would, it would matter, but it would not matter that much. You know, H-
0: have you dared watch the TV movie?
2: I did. I watched that in like 2002. I found like there was this weird, like rare video store in downtown Manhattan that had a copy. And I'm like, yes, this is what (laughs) I'm going to spend $30 on today. I'm going to find out what the fuck this was about. And it was not good. I (laughs) spent that $30 so nobody else would have to. That was, that was some dire, like made me question my life and my choices to no small extent.
0: (laughs) thank you for your service in that regard
2: <laughs>
0: oh, man. yeah it just it fascinates me that scott labdell wrote those stories that mean so much to so many and have been dissected for you know various things and the man himself turned out to be a dick <laughs> is being generous i suppose <laughs> big
2: big, big jode yeah that's, that was, that's weird. that was you can't have role models in the 90s though like I mean that was like my life you know you like you watch you know tv scripted by Joss Whedon you go home you listen to your Marilyn Manson you read your comics by Scott Lovedell and in 20 years you're gonna have just a series of harsh awakenings you know <laughs> like it's there was there was not a lot of positive male role modeling going on in the 1990s. You yeah. Know. And
1: what? it's funny to me that the at the same time of Generation X over at DC, you have Young Justice who suffered a similar sort of fate where that when the new 52 hit, those characters had no home anymore and were lost until recently. And by the way, the attempts to... Resuscitate them during the new 52. Whereby, oh, right, Scott Lobdell, who was much more known for what he was, into the stories, much more fit the ethos that we understand from him. Mm. <laughs> Tim Drake still makes me so mad.
0: <laughs> he pulled the mask off by the time he got to DC. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Tim's a good, good, happy boy now, and it makes me happy.
0: oh man do do you ever it's funny because you know talking about the x-men at the time the generation x was coming out we're all there was this weird undercurrent where they were all bemoaning turning 30 because they were turning the x-men as a concept was turning 30 at the time and you know do you ever you ever wish those kids had aged along with you like like skin is a middle-aged ex-barrio gangsta warning kids off the life sink is living his dad dreams with a partner who loves him you know jubilee convinces monet to let her buy a mall so her dreams never die I, I...
2: <laughs> well jubilee like they had like adult jubilee arc where she was like a vampire and also a single parent and then she yeah. like hooked up with chamber and like they they tried to do adult jubilee. They're like, this character means a lot to people, even though we made her a vampire and have not yet undone that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like I yeah, I think that you know it's very weird because like by that logic, how old would how old is Emma Frost now? Like in chronological age, how old is she? She's gotta be in her 60s, right? Right.
1: Well Emma, I mean, Emma de ages around Generation X, because when yeah. she first appears, she's in her mid-40s, probably, when the Hellfire Club, you know, during Dark Phoenix. And then she looks to be in her early to mid-30s tops in Generation X. So, of course, there's... the. uh, uh, Hey, wait, that line was a Whedon line. Never mind. Uh, (laughs) Was it a a plastic surgery line? Yes, it was. (laughs)
2: Yeah, Yeah, but, like, Emma just seems like she seems... Mythological, she seems like a timeless person. Whereas I can totally see, like, Banshee was like, he's always one bad decision away from being like 60 years old and washed up and bitter. Like, that's that's just kind of his deal, which um, is where
1: he is on Krakoa.
2: It <laughs> did, <laughs> yeah, but he's oh, yeah, also a he,
1: ghostwriter, yeah, R- oh. right after he was skinned by Moriora McTaggart.
2: Oh, lord, yeah, get your life together, Sean. Oh, my god. <laughs>
0: uh yeah he needs to eat pray love but uh
2: (laughs) i feel like scott summers is another one where like scott summers is gonna be 40 forever like he's always just like "Eh." like he's he was technically young at one point but he's always just gonna have like freshly divorced 40 year old guy energy to me (laughs) that's always gonna be his vibe
0: it's a it's a good energy (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. But uh we're we are here to talk about The Neighbors, which is your upcoming five-issue boom series with artist Letizia Cadnici, uh colorist Alessandro Santoro, and letter Rebecca Carey, launching March 22nd as of this recording. Uh Matt, this is a horror book, so I kindly yield the solicit text to
1: you. When Janet and Oliver Gowdy moved to the Quaint Mountain Town. Their daughter, Casey, becomes part of a horrific chain of events, revealing that their neighbors are anything but what they seem. Soon, an unsettling old woman named Agnes Early fixates on Janet and Oliver's other daughter, two-year-old Isabel. It becomes clear that it's impossible to know who to trust or who is even still human.
0: So we are... uh where are we i guess in the window of uh what what is foc for this
2: uh foc is it's today oh okay <laughs> okay
0: listeners if you're interested go back in time just <laughs>
2: just you know this is this is your your punishment for not caring enough that <laughs> you know you're listening to this podcast and it's already too late <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so it'll be out March 22nd. Final cutoff is is today. It's the February 27th when we're doing this. And uh, it's uh, that that was your only question. So I'm going to just stop there. I'm going to stop volunteering information. It's like I'm on a police interrogation.
0: Perfect. First time a guest is asked for a lawyer to be present. <laughs> uh, what is what is the origin of this project?
2: Uh, This project came along, um, it sort of has its origins in a lot of old folklore and mythology that I was reading and collecting and have been collecting my whole life like I'm just very nerdy and like will just sit down and read like visions and beliefs in the west of Ireland to find spooky Irish ghost stories and you know just tuck that in my back pocket it hasn't been very useful to me as a journalist sad to say but um, I had started to you know just kick around a lot of different ideas as Ma came to an end and I wanted to do something you know I had like some really terrible ideas. I had like cowboy werewolves. I had space. I had a lot. <laughs> and um, what I settled on was that so much of what is primarily scary to me these days is I'm a parent. I have a young kid. I'm a trans guy. I live in a small-ish town. It's a small-ish liberal town. I'm not like you know, in the middle of nowhere. But I drive through some Trumpy parts of the country. Um, and I really just wanted to go back to stuff that had been primarily terrifying to me when I was a kid. You know, like the ugliness of fairy tales and, you know, the creepy old lady who lives in a cottage by the woods and, you know, knows more than she should. And to get back into that sort of texture of childhood dread I found myself just going back and back into like old folklore and old folktales and this sort of came out of that that cauldron if that's not pretentious to say (laughs) not at all not at all and
0: um just for my co-host's sake keep keep that cowboy werewolf idea (laughs) (laughs) yes in the maybe I love my cowboy werewolves
2: it's like a terrible idea I was making my husband read the pitch I was like wait till you see what's up here and he's like okay I would read that book I handed in like a 10,000 word pitch on that one I did not I was not professional but (laughs) but like it wasn't 10,000 it felt like it was 10,000 words if you read it because it was quite bad but um That like fine tune that bad boy. (laughs) Uh, Now, uh, had you, you
1: know,
0: had you shopped this one around, or did you have, you know, the relationship with Boom from doing Maw? They were just like, here's the next one.
2: Yeah, they had asked me, like, what do you have? And this was among several things that I had just been sort of playing with in the background. It started out as like a really simple haunted house story, you know, that I just wanted to get this particular family into a house that was deep in the woods on the mountain. And I knew that there was nothing good happening in those woods, but I hadn't fleshed it out. Um, and somehow, you know, I don't know if you feel this way, but as a writer, there are things that you can like put together and it's a fun academic exercise and you can see how it would work. And then there are things that just want to be written. And this essentially just fell into my lap over a weekend. It was just like, oh no, this is, this is how this story goes. Okay. I understand this. Um, it felt really urgent to me because Ma had been, you know, in some senses, a social thriller was it was a rape revenge story and it was Mm -hmm. trying to be very grounded in like the realities of rape and how hopeless it is if you've been victimized how common it is to be victimized in that way and how very little recourse you would have if that if that happened to you how very little sympathy you would ever get from any of the systems that are supposedly set up to bring you justice um this felt like another way into a story that I had increasingly been covering, which is, you know, what happens to families when they're not what a family ought to look like. Uh, The family in the neighbors is an interracial family. It's a queer family. It's a family where one of the parents is trans. Uh, For me, since I've been out as a queer and trans person, like my presence in my child's life is so much more complicated. You know, like we have to have talks about like, no, nobody else in your kindergarten has this, has this going on for them at home, you know? And if you don't want to talk about me, that's fine. And if you don't want me to come to the PTA meeting, that's also fine. If you think people are going to make fun of you or there's going to be a problem, that's fine. You know, you're reading these stories where people are just straight up having their kids taken away from them in Texas and elsewhere for providing queer and queer affirming homes. You know, you're reading stories in Russia where like, when the Russian laws cracked down, it was really just like a thing where people just went home and talked to their kids and were like, okay, you don't call me dad anymore. That's, I'm the roommate. I live here. I'm the roommate. We don't acknowledge that this is a family anymore, not in public, not now. Mm -hmm. You know, that really primal terror of having your family ripped apart, to me, it's it's easier to get to a scary place if you are working from something that already scares you quite a lot. With Ma, I was working, you know, pretty much from a lot of raw trauma, from a lot of like, what if this never gets better? What if nobody ever cares? What if the world just stays exactly as unfair as it is forever? And I think that that, even though it led to some very bleak storytelling, was like, I just, I had to be in that mindset for a long time in order for that story to take off. Um, and for neighbors to take off, I really just had to live in that anxious new parent place of like, is my kid safe? Am I safe, you know, raising my kid? Is anything going to get, you know, fucked up in my kid's life because I came out that would have been easier for her if I hadn't, you know? Um, and I do feel like I'm rambling a bit, but it felt like, you know, just, those parental fears, for whatever reason, blended really easily with just sort of old folklore and fairy tales, because you're always reading those when you have a little kid. You're always sort of like you have your head back in all the old like spooky books that you read when you were a kid and all the old fairy tales. And those two situations just sort sort of start to talk to each other.
0: How how did your your team come together for this book um i know letizia before this was working on uh, house of slaughter right so she was already yeah. kind of in the uh the courtyard
2: <laughs> yeah i was really surprised i had written this thing like i was thinking of a really gothic sort of vibe for this one like i was watching a lot of guillermo del toro i was really into crimson peak Because, you know, that's a very like if you're writing a comic book, that's a good movie to sit with and watch a lot because every single frame of it is so composed Mm -hmm. and it's so full of visual information that it gets you, you know, I had written something that was just like every single panel had (laughs) way too many like plot relevant details in there. Like I didn't put anything in there that I didn't think needed to be in there, but I had thought of it as something very rich and ornate. And what Letizia does, um, I was a little bit familiar with her work on House of Slaughter, and I knew I was impressed with her work. And they were just like, no, we we just think that she knows how to do this. Here, look, this is what it would look like. Um, And she has this style that is like, her characters are so expressive, (laughs) you know, like they're really just deeply human. And the way she does that, the way she cuts to the emotion of everything is sh- just sort of like by extracting everything except the line that absolutely has to be there. Um, so I thought that she was just like a really good counterbalance for me. Like you've been talking to me and I've already like gone on 18 monologues that nobody gives a shit about, <laughs> you know, Like, and that's very much like when I write, I put a lot on the page and, you know, it's just it's a matter of pulling and taking out. So she was a great counterbalance in that, like, I knew that to write for Letizia, I needed to be very aware of like, what is the emotion in this moment, in this scene? What is this one thing that we need to be seeing right now? And it's scary is she has um, the last panel of issue three, I just saw, and I had scripted it. I knew it was gonna be bad, but then (laughs) they showed me Letizia's version. I was like, this is really bad people are going to be traumatized by this I don't know I don't know if this was a wise decision on my part to ask somebody to draw this but, um, it's
1: not a horror story until somebody is reduced to tears yeah
2: <laughs> just like you know all those like old warnings like if you go to this movie you're going to vomit and pass out there will be a nurse in attendance. It's, <laughs> that's my warning. Final panel of issue three is just like profoundly upsetting. But um
0: that is that is that's good marketing.
2: You will
1: bleed out your eyes. <laughs> the tingler.
0: <laughs>
2: uh
0: so generally, you know, what are some of
2: your horror touchstones? Um so for me, I think the first horror comic I ever really sat down and read was From Hell. And that's still mm-hmm. the one where like, if you ask me what a great horror comic looks like, From Hell is is it? Because it's just so deep and so immersive. And I think I was having like a really horrible week when I read <laughs> it. I think I had just like broken up with somebody and I just like sat down and read From Hell. And by the end, I like put it down and I was like, I feel worse now. This is worse. <laughs> I've been, I've been in a dark place where no one should be. Um, but I think that, you know, that's, that was a major influence on me in terms of like helping me figure out how comics could be scary. If you want to talk about the horror genre, I mean, I just, I'm one of those people where I, when I commit to loving something, I love it too much. And I love all of it at once. Um, so like, for this particular project, I could tell you that, like, Shirley Jackson was a big influence on it, Um, and that's another thing, like, since this is a story about childhood, my mom used to read me Shirley Jackson's, like, light, funny parenting essays, Um, uh, because she had, like, a dual career. She, like, wrote, like, cute little the essays about parenting and my mother read them to me and one day I got bored and was like well I'm gonna <laughs> see what else Shirley Jackson has, has written and I picked up We Have Always Lived in the Castle and just read it and I was eight years old and it has like a young protagonist so you think it's gonna be like fine for you to read mm-hmm. and I, by the end of it I was just like I was so delighted I was you know <laughs> I I had just you know figured out something fundamental about what I needed literature to do. Which was to be narrated by a goth who had slaughtered her entire family, like a preteen goth, you know, but like. um, So Shirley Jackson was big in this. Guillermo del Toro was big in this. Um, Angela Carter, again, talking about like weird bloody fairy tales was big in this. Mm.
0: This comic contains uh, mushrooms, which saying that out loud sounds like I'm giving a warning. It's not. (laughs) But, uh, you know, thanks to to stuff like this and uh, uh, Zach Thompson's I Breed the Body and and The Last of Us, you know, I now know mushrooms to be the creepiest thing in the forest. Uh, There
2: are so many fungus monsters now. Yeah. Um, With this, there are a lot of significant plants in this. Mushrooms aren't technically a plant, but they have, like, significance in English and Irish folklore. They show that something has been yeah they show something has been there um there's this is another thing where i think poor letizia did not know what she had signed up for where i like sent her like this whole back bible of like here are all the spooky plants i've looked up there will be plants <laughs> mentioned specifically in each panel and you need to know what they look like so there are a lot of blackberries there are a lot of um hawthorn trees and apple trees But mushrooms for me, everybody loves mushrooms because they pop up overnight. They're largely invisible. There's something called the dark taxa, which means that like the mushroom you can see Mm -hmm. is just, it's the fruit, essentially. It's what has come up from under. But -hmm. the whole ground is covered in invisible little shreds of bycelia. Anywhere Mm -hmm. you're stepping could potentially be a mushroom. It's just that most of it is dark taxa that is not fruited yet and i love that you know as um as a paranoid person i love the idea of something that just is everywhere and you don't know that it's there yet but it could be anywhere you know like any any second now they grow very fast
1: <laughs> so the book has the feel of what modern critics and scholars are calling elevated horror, a uh, genre which is best defined by the works of Jordan Peele and a lot of what we get from A24, as opposed to stuff out of Blumhouse, the exception of which are the Blumhouse movies from Jordan Peele. Um, <laughs> for those out there unaware, elevated horror tends to be more artistic, quote unquote, and tends to be more aware of its social themes. Mm-hmm. Do you th- think of your... Well, did you go into this as elevated horror or do you think that elevated horror is more
2: an artificial label and horror is horror? I mean, I love the A24 aesthetic. I really do. And I think that, you know, it's fair to say that some of those movies did seep into my thinking about what's beautiful in horror and how to create horror that's very visually beautiful, which is always sort of my my thing like it happened in ma too where just like a lot of that book is set in a very naturally beautiful environment because i want you to always have something cool to look at um you know with the neighbors it's the woods and that's a very a24 thing you know woods and antlers that's part of that whole aesthetic mm. i think though that like again if you're saying elevated horror the implicit assumption is that the rest of it is schluck or that the rest of it is not socially aware You know, um, Jordan Peele in Get Out is drawing from a whole history of social thrillers. He's referencing Rosemary's Baby and the Stepford Wives, like hardcore in that movie, some really overt references. You know, there's always been socially relevant horror. That's why it's always been a really popular genre for queer writers, for feminists. It's always had at that level of commentary in it. There's similarly, there's always been horror that is immensely beautiful and cinematic or literary you know like The Shining isn't elevated horror but it's you know shot for shot one of the best movies ever made David Lynch is arguably a horror filmmaker David Cronenberg is a horror filmmaker by you know by any shot and they're both very arthousey guys you know like horror is elastic and it is sort of like pizza like even really cheap horror is going to be good horror if you're like in the right space for it Mm -hmm. you know that it has that pizza quality where like any pizza is a good pizza but I don't think that that means it hasn't always been beautiful and socially meaningful you know I don't think that there's just like you know the horror that went to college and the horror that you know (laughs) lives in a shack in the woods I mean, half of Midsommar is Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, like that's it's straight up. There's these things are always in dialogue with each other. There's not there's not a high, low continuum, you know, that doesn't get violated or that doesn't bend around to touch itself at some level, you know.
0: I'm suddenly overcome with the urge to write a 5000 word think piece about why a nightmare on Elm Street three, the Dream Warriors
1: is elevated horror.
2: (laughs) I would read it.
1: I would read every <laughs> word of it.
2: See,
1: I stand by some of that. All horror is elevated horror if looked at in the right lens. So I'm, yeah.
0: And, you know, you are working with several layers of, of horror here. You know, there's the nature horror, the horror of small towns. You know, we've, we've talked about the anxiety of, of, of living as a, you know, quote unquote, non-normative family. You know, but underneath that, there's there is a layer of humor to this book. You know, it's the, the kind that comes from, you know, someone who just has to cut the tension with a joke because they don't know what else to to do. And after reading the comic, I saw it pitched as Gilmore Girls meets Hellraiser, which <laughs> which is what snapped that last piece into place for me. And and by the way, that is that is an all time elevator
2: pitch. <laughs> It was. um, Yeah, it's I'm trying to because some people are just like very resistant to quippy or funny horror, like the idea that, again, like we talk about Whedon and like, whether or not I have loved a lot of what Joss Whedon does, but he's a very, very powerful influence in genre thinking and people want to find different ways of writing dialogue, right? Um, My instinct is that horror and comedy do live next to each other in some ways, like they're both genres that are very much about like mm-hmm. building high tension and then getting a big release out of you. They're both mm-hmm. genres that depend a lot on the unexpected. They're both very physical. And I think that just like the fact that some of the neighbors is funny, like it's not it. you, you reach a point where it stops being funny, but that was always just, you know, it's a very particular kind of humor where like after enough bad things have happened either on you know the page or in your life you it the the sheer absurdity of the level of suffering you're encountering becomes funny and I think a lot of people (laughs) like from who experience some some degree of like marginalization or trauma in their life like that is the way you learn to laugh at things is that like at a certain point you look back at your own life and you're like okay this is a lot this is this is a little bit over the top you know you find a way to to not just dwell in your own misery you know um and i think that that's for me for whatever reason you know like Ma basically doesn't have jokes in it. It has like one or two. Um, And it was, I wrote this whole other like terrible YA novel while I was writing Ma just so that I would have something to write that was pure jokes because Ma, I knew like in order for it to feel as suffocating as it was, you would maybe be allowed to smile once and then you would immediately feel bad about it. (laughs) But The Neighbors to me comes from a warmer place and maybe a more hopeful place. And I want you to just like watch the family interacting as a family. And I want you to, you know, watch them making each other laugh and finding each other funny. I think that that the caring about these people and enjoying the time you spend with them is really going to come in handy when the hell beasts, you know, erupt. You're, you got to you got to care. Otherwise, it's just a hell beast. Could be anybody, you know. So.
0: There's there's one there's an exchange. Uh, That I particularly loved where uh, Casey, the teenage daughter is says, uh, I'm going to be in therapy until we all die of climate change. And Janet, the mother says also like five years, I I can I can deal with that. I got that.
2: Yeah, I love, I love Casey being very like Casey comes from a really specific sort of teenage register. Like I remember once I was having an argument in the car with my mother and she was like, I don't know what it would take to make you happy. And I was like, I'll be happy when the revolution comes mother. Like that, that's <laughs> sort of Casey's <laughs> deal. I'll be happy when the revolution comes. Like, that, taking yourself intensely seriously. Um You know, like, I just think that the bond between Casey and Janet is something that's like sneakily my favorite because they have a lot of each other in them. That's sort of the Gilmore Girls element of it all. Mm -hmm. And it's a strained relationship, you know, like Janet just went through a divorce and she kind of, you know, ditched Casey and. Put Casey's childhood through a major upheaval. Casey has not quite <laughs> forgiven her yet, but she also can't um see a way to be okay without her mother. And Janet is at that point where it's like, How much ice cream do I need to buy you until you forget about the divorce? Like she's definitely <laughs> at that point, like she's trying to like really just be super supportive so that you know her daughter is technically not allowed to be mad at her anymore. And that that thing of Janet desperately needing to pretend they're okay and Casey refusing to pretend that things are okay, I think eventually builds up to one of the more complicated and interesting sources of tension in the book. That sounds very vague. It's just like, and believe it <laughs> or not, if you keep reading it, sooner or later I'll start writing it well. But, you know, <laughs> like...
0: This is this is the the joy of of talking about a a, a book a, you know a month or so before it's come out yet though because you know can't can't spoil it what can <laughs> i say <laughs>
2: uh
0: and then and then there's the the even better thing of i, I you know, i'm working on some stuff can't talk about it yet you know these th- yeah. it, this is <laughs> it's the dance we do <laughs> ah <Yeah. laughs> uh, does does the town maintain that same undercurrent of menace if it were populated by classic sitcom neighbors like Steve Urkel, Wilson and Kimmy Gibbler
2: i think more so <laughs> i think i think that you know demon urkel is is something that you don't want to think about that'll keep you up at nights you know so
0: oh, and- you never you never know which version's going to step out of that cloning machine so yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> One thing I was dying to know is
2: where can I get Isabel's dinosaur head thingy? It's it's real. It's amazing. It's on Amazon. Oh. If you look up kid dinosaur hat, you are going to find <laughs> a foam dinosaur head that you can put on your child. And I can't see a single way that won't make your life better. Do they make adult <laughs> sizes? Not yet. Will they make adult sizes if a lot of people buy them for their children? It becomes a major cultural moment. Maybe. Mm -hmm. That's what The Neighbors is for. The Neighbors is here to help you start that moment in your own community.
0: Start the dinosaur hat revolution.
1: I'm sure they also make them in pet sizes. and that. I I could not imagine trying to put it on my cat as much as I would love to.
2: I can imagine putting it on your cat. You could also imagine the bloody stump I would have
1: (laughs) after trying to put it on my cat. I could get away with it with
0: 50% of my dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, uh, Isabel has her own font that adds to the unsettling, chaotic child nature of some of the things that she says. How did you and and Becca come to settle on, on that?
2: She got it right away. I had just sort of like my my scripting was just, you know, just to do all of Isabel's punctuation and capitalization very wrong and to just have random, you know, (laughs) random capital letters in the middle of words. Because, you know, kids like they don't have syllable stress yet. They just like Mm -hmm. every word is just this plastic thing that they're molding as it comes out of their mouths. And it's really exciting for them. Um, And and Becca actually like got it right away. I was like, I don't know. You should she's like, no, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a toddler. And it is, it is, that is a toddler's font. I feel really good about it.
0: The font of a toddler that threatens to eat a cat. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> she does. She wants to eat that. Isabella wants to eat a lot. Like basically, <laughs> like that is my one takeaway from having a toddler is that like anything they engage with in a serious <laughs> way, they're going to try to put it in their mouths at some point. And I think that that's like that's eighty percent of Isabel's Isabel's script is like Isabel is in the laundry room. Isabel has a sock in her mouth. You know, like she's, <laughs> she's like Tony Montana's sugar off the diner table. First issue, she, she really goes for it.
0: Ah, uh, Isabel's perfect. Ten out of ten. No notes. <laughs> Uh, okay so uh, I'm going to pepper in a couple questions here from our grand twitter inquisitor Asimov fangirl who asked uh, the first question was she was looking for any sort of uh, book or comic where she could learn more about uh, English Irish folklore myths and uh, we'll all make wrecks here I uh, was racking my brain Matt earlier today and it occurred to me there was another Boom Studios book that dealt in Irish folklore uh, you know set in a fictional past but uh the last witch by conor mccreary whom i almost typed conor mcgregor that is a ufc fighter not the guy (laughs) who will kill shakespeare
2: (laughs) okay so the ones that um that i i'm gonna recommend to you are visions and beliefs in the west of ireland okay that's a good one um and that has all sorts of like it has you know firsthand testimony about biddy early who was this like fantastically powerful witch who actually got she got brought in to court for being a witch at a time when it was illegal but like all of her neighbors were so terrified of being cursed that they wouldn't testify against her and they had to let her go and I feel like that's that to me is like ultimate witching that feels like that might have been the one role which they captured I would not testify against a witch that's like some the wire shit you're not going to testify <laughs> things are bad things are going to happen to you but um so Visions and Beliefs in the West of Ireland, Yeats is not, politically, he was, he was a fascist. He did mm. some collecting of Irish folklore. It's all written by other people. So I'm going to, it's um, some fairy and folktales of the Irish peasantry. Okay. Um, and that is, it's not primarily written by Yeats. It's primarily just Yeats collecting o- other old folklore. And that's kind of the definitive treasury. And then you can just, you know, you can, I have so many random little books on superstition and witchcraft. There's one that's um, by D.D. Cheney that's just a maple, mandrakes, mayhem. It's something. Look up maple and mandrake because those are in the title and it's a treasury of English folklore. And you'll find Mm -hmm. some things, you'll find some actually little chants and stuff that end up in the neighbors in some of the later issues so that's
0: and then uh her second question was uh she had asked about any particular uh encounters creepy funny wholesome or otherwise uh you may have had with uh neighbors that you would become okay this is
2: this is very sad I, I hope this woman isn't like a super comic book fan. And I hope she isn't listening to your podcast. If she is, this is a story about me being a jerk. But okay. there was this woman who lived next door to us who seemed to like, always know when I was on the porch with my toddler and she would always show up. She'd be like, she's so cute. Can I babysit her? And I was like, I don't think so. No. But she, was like, she kept showing up and she kept bringing more and more gifts. And she is in fact like, this is like, a major part of the neighbors that I have to explain to people is that it's terrifying when an old lady keeps showing up on your porch and bringing you gifts that's like a major plot point point. Mm. and it's really just literally that this nice old grandma used to live next to me and bring like toys over for my child i i did not allow her to babysit <laughs> i just like there's okay there's every chance that like you're a nice old lady and you're a little bit lonely and then, like, there's that one in I'm gonna say ten chance that you are a murderer. And I, as a parent, I am learning to like go with that one in ten chance. Like, I'm going with my gut, gift of fear. I don't want you to bring any more strange toys over to our house and leave them on our porch, <laughs> you know. So
0: there, there is a there, there is a big try hard energy in that.
2: Yeah, there's like there's so much going on there. Where it's like, it does, like, it it feels a little bit like you're building a candy house. It feels like yeah. I'm supposed to start licking the window panes and, you know, somebody's going to get cooked in an oven. Like, that's just, it's not good.
1: No. But. <laughs> uh, I,
0: I will share this story. So, my neighbors came over, Uh, folks across the street came over once while uh, my wife and I were away on vacation. Uh, her mother was at our house watching our kids and uh, our dogs were in the backyard and one of them had gotten a hold of a rabbit and mm-hmm. would not let go so the 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 neighbors had come over and they were trying to bribe the uh my one dog to finally you know open its jaw and release the the rabbit with a piece of chicken um good people their uh their son is teaching my son how to play Dungeons and dragons so we're we're lucky in that regard.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I do not have anything quite so comedic um uh, but I well no I guess it depends on how you take comedy what's the uh tragedy plus time equals comedy or something <laughs> to that effect. Um my wife and I the last apartment we lived in before we bought our house it's so the one apartment I don't think you ever went to, Dan, because we didn't invite people over because it was not a terribly good neighborhood. Ewing, the the that like fourteen months we lived in Ewing after we left. Yeah, East I Town. don't remember that. Okay. Yeah, no, we we didn't invite people over. It was it was not th- this particular block wasn't a, it wasn't a bad block, but Ewing itself is right up against Trenton and a lot of mm-hmm. so it's it's not the the best neighborhood. Um, and our house was. We did not realize that when the landlady said that we looked like the right fit for her house, what she meant was we looked like the white fit for oh, her no. house. Yeah, we were, it was the, the one little like four units on a block of mostly black and Latinx people. This one house was all white people, which we didn't know when we rented it. Uh, but what that meant was that she didn't really scream other than that. And her rents were low, which is what we wanted because we were saving up for the final down payment on a house. Uh, Well, the couple who moved in shortly after we moved in across the hall. He was a really nice guy. He -hmm. worked all these hours, etc. She, on the other hand, didn't work and was on heroin Mm -hmm. and was was in and out of rehab a bunch. And when she would come back, come out, she would hide her kit outside the apartment in places because she was supposed to not be, you know, using anymore. So at one point, right behind the trash cans, I found the baggie and the needles and everything. And I was like, there's an eight year old who lives upstairs. So I just kind of. Scooped it up, walked it down a block to the communal trash can, and boop. Uh, But at one point when I was at work, uh, my wife starts texting me. They're screaming at each other again, which was a fairly common occurrence. Uh, She's saying that she'll just hit herself, and they'll just blame you then he starts leaving she begins chasing him out of the house with a broom like a a sitcom from the 50s whacking him with the broom he gets in the car she jumps on the hood of the car and starts hitting the windshield with the broom and only then does she eventually after she's exhausted herself get off the car and he drives away So it wasn't exactly our encounter with them, but we did our best to not encounter them because she would also hit us up for money to get a fix.
2: Yeah. I'm going to, I have one more. I'm going to give you another neighbor and this is going to make you feel better about your life. Um, I... In Queens, lived in like the last thousand dollar apartment in Queens and it had like rats the size of your forearm. There were like holes in the walls, holes in the ceiling. But I lived above this older fellow who only ever had guests that were in their like early 20s. (laughs) And they only ever came by late at night. And so okay. like, you know, me and my, my dates, my roommate would play the game, sex worker, drug dealer, sex worker, drug dealer, you know, <laughs> can you tell who is it, who, which, which one, um, because, uh, and he eventually, you know, he, as an older fellow does, uh, moved out, I think moved in with his kids, you know, and he gave me his fridge and that's how I found out the answer. Cause when I opened the fridge, there were used condoms in there. So I inherited my neighbor's used condoms. In, which he kept in his fridge, you know, so like there were there were reasons to worry about his independent living skills at that point. But there you go.
1: We're earning the E rating on the podcast tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> is that no, I please, think I'm is the like one.
2: a fun perky story, but it's not because it's just like it, it ends with me with a refrigerator full of what have you. Samples. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, really? All right. So, uh, generally, how, how have you enjoyed working in comics the past couple of years?
2: I've been so gratified. I mean, it's an honor. It's so much fun. And it really has, it's forced me, I think, to be a better writer. Because you can't just, like, opinionate your way through everything. You really have to sit there and think your way through the visual logic of a scene and get out of your verbal brain and into your gut, you know, get into a more emotional way of thinking and a more emotional way of storytelling. Um, I've just, I've been so, so thrilled with it. I, I can't tell you how much I've loved both these comics. I don't like, I, it scares me that people read them. I'm like, that's the thing is that like, I really enjoy writing and I love that I get paid to write because I, I'm not good at anything else but then like people have to read it and I get you know like I I feel a little bit bad about that you know <laughs> they have to read it but um I just I couldn't be happier. The editors at Boom are like the best editors I've ever worked with like you can just trust them every single time. it's always gonna elevate the pin. you know it's it's so they're so good it's it's been great what uh
0: what initially, prompted you jumping in
2: had you been looking for like a new challenge or or, or just you know well, another medium to work in fiction books and one of them was specifically about horror which I think is why they reached out to me uh but I had all, always wanted to do it I had been really I'd written a lot of like comic scripts that went nowhere in college you know Um, and I sort of became like very bitter and disillusioned because I did not, at that time, I could not see a way forward for me. You know, I'm not, I can't draw. I will storyboard. Al Kaplan can tell you that I storyboarded the entirety of Ma in stick figures and he got the PDF of it. And like, I don't know to this day, I think he probably keeps it and like shows it to people at parties. Like, look at what he did. (laughs) (laughs) Like, but, um. But like, I just, I didn't have the visual skill and I didn't have the connections that I would have needed, you know, to be, to make a credible pitch for myself if I hadn't also had a a career as a nonfiction writer. But it's just, it's great for me because these are such, it's, it's a lot like writing poetry. I actually, sadly, in another life majored in poetry. It's a lot like writing something like a sonnet or a sestina where the form is such a constant pressure on your work. You cannot write more words than the panel will allow. You cannot write more panels than the page will allow. You are in constant dialogue with the form and it's forcing you to write the most beautiful, economical, compressed version of the story that you can tell. And I just think, you know, it's, I I love writing in that form. I love being pressured to think in that way. I'm somebody who really enjoys having a form and discipline and rules for what I write. It's like that T.S. Eliot thing of like, you know, you need to if to play a tennis, play tennis, you need a net. Um, I don't think that's T.S. Eliot. I don't think he ever said that. I think that's me quoting a <laughs> creative writing professor who may have also taught T.S. Eliot at some point in the semester. But, you know, we'll just we'll attribute it to him. He's dead. He can't fight back. Tennis balls, nets, T.S. Eliot. Um, but yeah, that's I I think it's, you know if you should everybody should try writing a comic script I guarantee you can't do it your first time I wrote like 15 comic scripts in the summer while I was pitching the first time just to make sure I still knew how to do it and it turned out that I did not you know <laughs> so
0: Um, uh, in, in terms of broadening horizons you know you once wrote the libretto for an opera around Martin Bashir's interview with Princess Diana you know, given yes. given how varied your 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 writing is across forms, you know, where did that rank in terms of of difficulty and challenge?
2: It was not easy because the libretto actually came before any of the music. Mm. They were like, we want to do Martin Bashir and Princess Diana. We also want it to be a commentary on fame and sexism. And furthermore, we want it to be like the David Lynch movie Inland Empire my god I was like okay I you know I got Inland Empires out of print but I I got it through whatever whatever means I got it I just sat down and watched it and I was like I could absolutely do Princess Diana's Inland Empire I want to do that that sounds like so much fun you know so I just like I I wrote I worked pretty closely with the director on that one not least because almost everything in that opera got translated back into German at the end of the day um And I would just sit down and I would be like, okay, here's how I think this goes. We had the transcript of the interview that we could work with for a base text. I had other stuff that I could bring in. Um, We had bits that we could fictionalize, but it was trying to write a David Lynch script essentially from the raw transcript of the interview, trying to take it in as many directions as possible. And the thing about that is that like, they really did not want it to be linear. You could come in with some really weird shit Um, I think I just you know I had her throw up on Martin Bashir at one point just (laughs) I I think it was symbolic but it you know um, I had you know just like little bits of old nursery rhymes that she was singing I had her quote Paris Hilton I had so much weird bizarre stuff that I just put in there and they would just you know again it's you throw everything at the wall and the director tells you what they can do and what they can't do. But it was pretty collaborative, that process, because the music hadn't even been written yet. You know, like you're really you're writing the very basic structure of what this will be. And then it's going to come back to you a million times. The singer is going to come back to you and say what she wants to do. And, the you know, the musicians are going to come back to you and ask you if this sounds right. And, you know, it's again, it's like comic books. You're working with a lot of different people.
0: How, how did it feel to ultimately see it performed?
2: It was really like once again, I think that there's something fundamentally wrong with me, which is like, the only way I'm able to write is there's that, um, that old quote where like, you should write like everybody you know is dead. And I write like, <laughs> I'm like the last survivor of a nuclear apocalypse. I'm like, it's fine. Nobody's gonna read it. You know, <laughs> like I, just, I tend to just forget that things are real until they're right in front of me. But it was so wonderful. I mean, I had studied opera in like, High school and stuff you know it wasn't like something that i ever thought i was going to be able to do anything with especially like now you listen this is this is not the voice of an angel but um but to be part of that just felt like so astonishing i think you know i i definitely reached a point like mid-pandemic where i was just like i'm gonna say yes to any project anybody pitches me (laughs) and if it's bad you know, it's bad, but I'm not going to go to my grave not having written a German opera about Princess Diana based on the works of David Lynch. I'm going to do that. You know, like. Um... Looks looks
0: good on a resume. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, elsewhere in your bio, this is this is what I had to know more about. Uh, It, it says he once made a flowchart about farts for The New York Times. I did.
2: It, and it, then they just had that big protest of their trans coverage. Yeah. And I was able to sign on as a New York Times contributor based on having once been hired to write a flowchart about farts for the New York Times. It paid off. Um it was for their kids section, you know, like mm-hmm. and I just like I can write in flowchart form, you know, farts, kids love farts. Who doesn't love farts? You know so that is that is my most distinguished byline i hope i never (laughs) contribute to the new york times again i hope i literally just go to my grave and they have to put that as the last line of the obituary flowchart about farts for the new york times you know
0: make the old gray lady just a little browner but uh you know Truly, if graphic design is someone's passion, this is that, that is the ultimate
2: expression of that. Yeah, I know. I had
0: uh, to. Th- this one is in the sort of the zeitgeist, so I wanted to ask about it. Who should draw Joyce Carol Oates's bio comic, and why is it not Rob Liefeld?
2: It's not Rob Liefeld. I don't know who should draw Joyce Carol Oates's bio comic. Hmm. You know Emily Carroll, she has um she's written some horror comics when I arrived at the castle as one. Okay, They're very okay. beautiful and graphic and erotic and there's blood and I feel like only Emily Carroll could capture just sort of the pure hallucinatory experience of being trapped in Joyce Carol Oates's Twitter feed. Like you're in there, you're in there, you're in there. She's right about trans people. Oh, no, she's not. She's not right about skeletons or dinosaurs. There's her foot. Why is it? Why is her foot there? You know, like I think Emily Carroll could really immerse you in that world. And um, that's that's going to be my recommendation. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> there we go.
0: Um, what, other, what other stuff do you have coming up that we should look for in in the comic space or
2: otherwise? Uh, well, it's neighbors right now. That's my, that's my main thing right now. And once again, I have things in the works, but I'm not allowed to talk about them. So, you know, that's Mm -hmm. how it goes. We'll see. We'll see what happens. And I'm, you know. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any,
0: any uh, signings, appearances, convention stuff coming up to mark the series launch or, or anything else?
2: I mean, it's hard because I'm like out here in the country. Like, I look out my window, and there's just, you know, lots and lots of pine trees and farms. Mm-hmm. So, I, I'm, I'm doing podcasts. That's what I'm doing right now. There you go. Uh, uh, by chance, do you have any pets? I have one pet. I have a dog. She's like 12 years old. She will mm. never die. She <laughs> doesn't like anyone. <laughs> She's she's like specifically my partner's dog. And if he ever goes out of town for work, she'll take like three days to decide he's dead. And then she'll like cuddle up with me and let me pet her. <laughs> so like, I know exactly, like there's a time limit on her loyalty, but as long as she's, you know, not convinced that my partner's dead, she only likes him. Um, and her name is Peggy. She's a Boston Terrier.
0: Oh. That's great. Yeah, it sounds like my uh my oldest Chewie is 13. Oh and my god. Yeah, miniature dachshund. Uh very very cranky. <laughs> but also very but also very fiercely loyal. So. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, I feel like Peggy used to be like more of a scrapper before we had a kid. Now she's just sort of given up. Like she's just sort of like sitting on the couch, looking reproachfully at all of us, like, <laughs> "How could you do this to me?" You know, but that's that's fine. She's had a good life for an old dog, you know. Mm-hmm. We all we all respect her. Nobody forces her to, you know, be friendly to anybody. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good deal.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, penultimate question: What are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I just read a book called Future Feeling by Joss Lake. That was really, really good. Um, I'm reading... A lot of nonfiction that's not actually, like, that interesting. If I find some nonfiction that's interesting, I'll let you know. The last really good um, comic I read was Nice House on the Lake. The first volume of that was so Mm -hmm. good, and I don't know. There's more. Is there more out? Have there been more collections out? The
1: second volume is either recently out or will be out shortly because the the floppies have completed.
2: Yeah so I'm I'm ready for that and I also like I have this like little program that I do to keep myself from getting dumb where I like set aside books that I should have read already every month you know so like I have a lot of things that I've set aside that I should have read already Uzumaki by Junji Ito was the latest one that I should have read already and I did and it's just it's so neat and I really liked it don't uh-huh. know Well, Jude,
0: this has been a fantastic hour. Final question as we release you back into the world. Uh, How can people follow you online, keep up with the neighbors, and everything else that you
2: are working on? Okay. So nobody has ever liked me more after following me on Twitter. But (laughs) if you follow me on Twitter, it's by Jude Doyle, B Y J U D E D O Y L E. Um, I also have a newsletter where I like review horror movies twice a month, and that's jude-doyle.ghost.io. And you can follow me there too. And you might like, I me mean, more than you'll like me on Twitter. I have a Joyce Carol Oatesian presence on Twitter. Like nobody has ever really been able to maintain a level of respect for me once they've been exposed to the fire hose of takes. But you know, <laughs> I do my best. Does that mean there's an accidental foot pick in there somewhere? There's. I haven't done feet picks yet. I think one day when I just get really starved for dopamine and validation, I'll be like, I'm still relevant, and I'll just you know. <laughs> <I'll-> <laughs> look i'll go to the feet well but i don't i don't want to do that yet i think i have to save that for for a rainy day i have to really be in my hour of need to do that in case of emergency break feet yes absolutely
0: yeah dude <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show
2: <laughs> thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed it
0: that's it for this week's show as a reminder, WMQ&A is part of XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lasowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shout-outs on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claw sticker designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $4 donation gets you access to Our Son Pete and the sticker, a twenty-five dollar donation lets you plug your crowdfunded or creator own comic in a 60 second spot, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Kat Purcell, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from Comics XF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Azaba Fangirl, aka the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQA on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at Matt Less, 1013 and Comics XF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, somewhere out there, there's a Batman comic where all the characters simply cannot stop saying the word boner. WNQA